U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I'm joined by the one, the only, the Kristoff. Hey, buddy. That's me. That is you. Hey, Dale. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. So, uh, we're still in the American Civil War, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. But we just finished our last detour of war, so we're going to move on. We're going to be talking about the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the American Civil War. So, are you ready to get underway? Oh, yeah. I was I was ready when you said, hey, Christoph, or the Christoph, or however you introduced me, I was ready. All right. But thank you. I appreciate your civility. Well, let's cast off. So, this theater, the Trans-Mississippi Theater of the War, was a major military and naval operations west of the Mississippi River. None of the states and territories that border the Pacific Ocean is going to be counted in this because that's the Pacific Coast theater of war. The This campaign classification was established by the United States National Park Service, in point of fact. In 1861, the Confederate Army launched a campaign into the territory of what is now present-day Arizona and New Mexico. So, residents of this area, they adopted a secession ordinance of their own and requested that the Confederate forces stationed in Texas to help them. And they wanted their help in removing the Union Army forces that were still in their area. The Confederate Territory of Arizona was proclaimed by a guy named Colonel John Baylor after they won victories at the Battle of Mesilla and New Mexico and the capture of a number of different Union forces. Uh, Confederate troops were unsuccessful, though, when they tried to press north in the uh, to expand further north. And then just got out of Arizona completely in 1862 when the Union reinforcements came from California. They were like, oh, California's here. Run! <laughs> so there was a small battle, the Battle of Glorietta Pass, that was, you know, just, it was a small skirmish in both, you know, the numbers of men that were involved and how many were lost. I mean, it was like only 144, or 140 versus 190. So, you know, not, not very many guys. Yeah, that's pretty small. But the issues that they were involved with were huge, which means that these itty-bitty battle was decisive in resolving because the Confederacy might have taken Fort Union and Denver had the they not been stopped at Glorietta. That would have been huge. Just the, the passageways alone, that kind of choke point would have been incredible. Uh, there was a Texan that said, quote, if they had not been for the devils from Pike's Peak, this country would have been ours. So, you know, this battle dissolved any possibility at all for the Confederacy to take New Mexico and, you know, expanding even further west. So in April, a, the California column, which were Union, Union volunteers from California, pushed the remaining uh, Confederate troops out of Arizona at the Battle of Piacho Pass. So in the east, you know, the fighting kept dragging on for three more years. But in the southwest, bah, the war was over. Do you think it was because it was just so remote? I know reinforcements came from California to aid with the defense of Arizona, but it seemed like this was even prior to the Transcontinental Railroad, so getting to these places would have been difficult. Do you think it was just that difficult to get more Confederate troops there? They were just so bogged down in the east? What, what do you think? A combination of, of both. It's very hard to travel anywhere. Not only do you have to get people there, but you have to supply them, which means supply trains. Right. Those are expensive, and they take up manpower and resources. So, yeah, waging a war against an entire continent 
since, you know, the U.S. is east to west, the entire continent, that portion of it, mm -hmm. even today it would be difficult. Yeah, I agree. That's a good... That's a... But, yeah, the Civil War might be over for them, but the war against the Native Americans were not. The they were yeah. they were still fighting the Apache, the Navajo, and the Comanche. You know, I never really thought about that constant struggle against the Native Americans happening simultaneously with the Civil War. That had to really make things difficult, I presume for the Union in particular. Yeah. I mean, the Union also did have uh, Native American allies that fought on their side during the Civil War as well, but that's mostly in the Northeast. This is the West. This is... Yeah. They were much more brutal, I believe, I think, in the West. And also, it's fresher on all the people who are getting ousted and removed. It's, it's fresher in their minds, because it's happening right now and, you know, and not too distant future, not too distant past. That's true. Yeah, just very, very contemporary. So that was Arizona and New Mexico Territory. Now we're going to move on to the Missouri and Arkansas, states of Missouri and Arkansas. So the Missourians, they sided with the Union by a ratio of about two or three to one. The pro-Confederate governor, a guy named Claiborne F. Jackson, had a small state guard under General Ben McCullough. And after some victories at the Battle of Wilson's Creek and Lexington and in Missouri, Confederate forces were driven out of the state when uh, the Union Army arrived, which was much larger. And this was in February of 1862. And then they were pretty much knocked out of the war when they were defeated at the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas. Which, of course, when you're knocked out of a conflict and the war is still raging, what, what, what do you think springs up? Um, rebellion and... Uh, I forget what the word... I'm searching for a word. Not discontentment. That's too light of a word. Angst. A, a guerrilla war starts. Yeah. Right. And in uh, Missouri, these gangs of pretty much just Confederate insurgents were known as bushwhackers. And they okay. wrecked Missouri. They ambushed and fought Union troops and Union state militia forces. Uh, a lot of the fighting was between, you know, Missourians of different persuasions. So they were fighting Missourian on Missourian. I was going to say, they talk about in the Civil War how it, because it was brother on brother and the bloodiest battle in American history... Sometimes that gets separated because, like, well, you know, you've got New Yorkers fighting folks in Alabama or what have you. But when you have it that lo that local, yeah. that's that's really horrific. Yeah, yeah uh, both of these sides they carried out uh, lots of huge uh, atrocities against civilians. You know, the and they ranged from forced resettlement to just plain old murder. Uh, historians estimate that the population of the state was about a one-third pre-war. It dropped by a th by a, it, it dropped by a third. Uh, many of the most brutal bushwhackers were guys like William C. Cantrell and William T. Bloody Bill Anderson, and uh, I'm. Have you heard of these guys? I mean, they were pretty notorious. I, I have not, actually. Um, tell me more. Well, a group of their followers remained under arms and carried out robberies and murders for 16 years after the war. What, what do you think the motivation was, given that the war ended and they're still going for 16 years? But did they just have that bloodlust in their hearts? or Hate. Hate. Yeah, I guess, I guess if you're especially if you're on the Confederate side and the Union achieves total victory, you have that animus in, just in you and, you and you need to express it. Wow. Now, there are three famous outlaws that were part of this group that I'm sure you've heard of. Jesse James, Frank James, Cole Younger. 
Yes, I have heard of them. And the younger brothers? I, I'm, I guess I'm, I never realized what their origins were. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah, no. Jesse James, I believe, if I remember right, was a uh, scout for the Confederacy. That's, um, I don't know. There's something about American history where you think about the Old West or you think about uh, industrialization or even like we were talking about earlier, fighting the Native Americans, and you don't necessarily see the overlap or like, oh, yeah, there was also a civil war happening at the same time of all of this stuff. And so that's, it's kind of mind-blowing when you put it all together. Yeah. And, you know, people say the same thing in the future at uh, our period of time as well. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> they will. So the this Confederate guerrilla insurgency in Missouri, by a lot of historians, are a lot of historians are in agreement that the this was the worst insurgency ever in on American soil because of just how brutal they were. Hmm. They calculate nearly twenty seven thousand Missourians died in this violence that's huge again the population of missouri went down by a third yeah that's that's unbelievable but i believe you dale i know you and i believe you oh thank you uh, i appreciate that uh there are different explanations for the huge level of grill activity in missouri uh, that include the possibility that the violence was linked to thousands of court-ordered sales of property that belonged to the state's Confederate sympathizers, and that the, the uh, property sales arose from court judgments for defaulted debts incurred early in the war to arm the rebel troop. I see. So they mortgaged their their homes in order to have supplies for the troops, but then when defeat comes, there's no... There's no getting escaping the debt, and the bill comes due, and they lose all the property, and wow, what it just seems tragedy upon tragedy from a very um, individual human perspective. You yeah, know what I mean, so I'm pretty sure uh, in there in Missouri that uh, there was nothing for the Navy. Nope. Yeah, we talked about the attacks on uh, the forts in New Orleans, and they went a little bit north on the Mississippi, but I don't think they reached anywhere near Murray or anything like that. So what we'll do is we'll move on to Texas and Louisiana. And guess what's on Texas and Louisiana? Uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So there's water. There's Navy, right? So we should have some Navy yes, stuff here. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> I was trying to think of the river that separates them. There is a river that is the border, but it was much easier to go with the larger <laughs> body of water they share. Yes, it, 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 you are completely right there. So, Louisiana and Texas. The Union made several attempts to capture the Trans-Mississippi regions of Texas, Louisiana from 1862 until the end of the war. The ports on the east were under blockade or just plain old captured. And that meant Texas in particular became a blockade running haven. Texas was referred to as the back door of the Confederacy. Texas and Western Louisiana continued to provide cotton crops that were transferred overland to the Mexican border towns of Matamoros and the port of Baghdad and shipped to Europe by means of blockade runners in exchange for supplies. Wow. So, of course, the Union did not like this. So they mounted several invasion attempts in, of Texas. Each of them were not successful. The Confederate victories in Galveston, the Battle of Sabine Pass, the Second Bayou Teach campaign repulsed all these invasion forces. The Red River campaign in western Louisiana was very, went very, very bad for the Union. And they also had a defeat at the Battle of Mansfield. So, and this pretty much ended the Union's attempt to invade the region until, you know, the Confederacy lost and the Union was like, well, we won anyway, so 
Bye. Right. That's interesting because in the last episode we talked about New Orleans and how they systematically just kind of made their way and captured it and and started running it as an occupying force. I wonder what was so significant or different about the folks in Texas or the troops there that allowed them to be more successful in repelling the Union forces. The only thing that comes to mind would be, I mean, it was kind of on the heels of the the Texas independence battle. I guess they were assigned statehood, what, like 20 years earlier? And so they may have those uh, tactics or memories or even organization from back then, that kind of uh, group knowledge, that tribal knowledge that allowed them to be successful. I don't know. That, that, that sounds very good, but I'll tell you exactly what it was. It was okay. the hat, the belt buckle, and the boots. Dude, yeah. The bigger the belt <laughs> buckle and hat. That's intimidating. I've met somebody with a belt buckle as big as their face, and I did not want to mess with that dude. Why? They're not going to be able to run. They're not going to be able to do anything. They can't. They could hardly move in that thing. Yeah, but they could They could uh, deflect bullets in that, in that zone. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, in that one specific zone. <laughs> Yeah, was just move their hips, you know, jump. I don't know. Well, I was also pretty okay. young. So. So the, there, that's what it was. You were young. Uh, see, so there were some isolated events in the East when the Civil War continued at a, at a low level in the Trans-Mississippi Theater for several months after Lee surrendered. The last battle of the war occurred at Palmito Ranch in uh, southern Texas. And was a Confederate victory. Sounds like the Battle of New Orleans uh, under Jackson, to a degree, with the War of 1812. Just like, hey, the war's over, but we don't know that, and we're going to fight you anyway. Well, it takes time for, you know, communication, for word to reach that, hey, the war's over. You know? All right, so we're going ahead, going to go ahead and talk about a battle, because guess what? We have some Navy action. This is yeah, all right. This is the first battle of Sabine Pass. This was in Jefferson County, Texas. So Sabine Pass is a waterway off of the Texas mainland, and in September of 1862, a guy named Lieutenant Pennington had a mortar schooner, the USS Henry Jones, and he was blockading the Sabine River. On September 21st, Acting Master Frederick Crocker on the steamer USS Kingston and Acting Master Quincy Hopper on the schooner USS Rachel Seaman, they they pulled up to the Henry Jones because they needed to develop a plan of attack on a Confederate fort. In the early morning hours of September 25th, 1862, Union naval forces under the command of Crocker they attempted to enter the Sabine Pass. And as Crocker made his way through the Inland Passage towards Beaumont, that is when the Confederates attacked. So when these squadrons came near Fort Sabine, Crocker ordered his ships to begin artillery bombardment of the enemy position. Confederate forces were numbering 30 infantry and artillerists manning the artillery batteries. They had support by about 30 cavalrymen as well. They were unable to effectively return fire because their guns were very, very old, which means they were out of range of the Union fleet. So, I mean, if you can't fire back, what are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know what you could do in that scenario. Just... um. I guess some kind of improvised antagonism, but dang, you'd have to be careful because if their guns work and you're in range, you're at risk. Well, I'll tell you what Major Joseph S. Irving decided to do. He was the CO of that fort. He ordered all his artillery spiked and retreated during the night. That, that makes sense. It's like, try not to supply your enemy and get out of there. So now that there's not a significant military presence, the town of Sabine Pass surrendered when the sun came up. They were like, whoop, our defenders are gone. You win. <laughs> right. 
So because of this victory, the Union was able to make uh, strides further inland. On September 28th of 1862, three boats with 30 men traveled up the river for 12 miles near the mouth of Taylor's Bayou and attempted to sabotage a railroad bridge. They they did not do that. They failed. Uh, in December, I mean, in October, Croker captured a blockade runner called the Dan and used it to travel up the Sabine River again to destroy the railroad bridge. So the second time they were able to do it. So Crocker was then promoted to the rank of acting volunteer lieutenant for gallant conduct in the Sabine Pass by Admiral Farragut. You know that name. Oh, yeah. That guy's been around. Now, when the... Uh, Intelligence guys said there was a large Confederate army preparing to counterattack. Master Harper withdrew the boats across the bar back into the Gulf and abandoned the city and fort, which means that the Confederacy was able to just walk in and, oh, this stuff's ours again. I'm just thinking to retreat, I understand if you're over, you know, out, outmanned or outgunned or something, but these ships. They had weapons, and they they had a, a an ability to repel the Confederate army. And I'm just curious what the thinking was to withdraw. I guess they would have the range, the army would have to come out into the sea to meet the ships, and they could still kind of fire on them. Maybe they were more vulnerable on the river. Which, by the way, Sabine River, now that you mention that, that is the river that separates Louisiana and Texas. So I'm glad you brought that to mind. But what, anyway... I'm just thinking about the strategy and the thinking behind the withdrawal. Well, if you bring in a large enough force, you know, you can scare anybody out. It's true. Dur during this battle, they had two schooners and a steamer versus 30 infantry, 30 cavalry, uh, the f and the artillery men at the fort. Yeah, if anything, it gives you time to assess without suffering, you know, being under fire or suffering losses. So that that makes sense. So that is the first battle of Sabine Pass. H how are you feeling about that one? You know, well, I guess uh, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. I guess it happened. So that's one thing. Um, I think it's interesting what each side was able to do and what what forces they were able to muster up and how that affected the other side. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Just So, yeah. And given that there is the first Battle of Sabine Pass, there must be a second, and I'm curious what the second is going to be well, about. First, we're going to talk about the Battle of Corpus Christi. This happened August 12th to a August 18th, 1862. So, as we said earlier, Texas had been the main source of supplies for the Confederate forces during the Civil War. And the Union set their naval forces into blockade the Texas coast. And despite being in a Confederate state, Corpus Christi was actually home to both rebel and Union sympathizers. So, during this battle, there were five Union and four Confederate boats. The U.S. Navy vessels included the sloop, the USS Bella Italia, the, a steamer that was converted to a gunboat, the USS Shalem, a bark, the USS Arthur, a schooner, the USS Reindeer, and a armed yacht called the USS Coriophis. Nice. That's a very diverse set of ships. Yes. The Confederate naval forces had a sloop named the CSS Breaker, a schooner named the CSS Elma, a second sloop, the CSS Hannah, and a merchant and a merchant steamer, the AB. Well, that seems, I mean, there seems to be more steamers on the Confederate side, if I'm hearing you properly, because when I hear schooner and bark, and like these are types of sailing ships. Yeah. And so... It seems like, although 
they're one ship down, the Confederates have the technological advantage in this match. No, they both only had one steamer each side. Oh, okay. Then I must have misheard. Uh, carry on. I shall. Uh, let's see. So the USS Shakem, which was a gumboat that was uh, converted from a steamer, was commanded by a captain... H.W. Morris, who was a former U.S. Navy commander of New Orleans. And this boat was armed with one 20-pound parrot rifle, four 32-pounder cannons, and had a crew of about 50. And this boat actually participated in a number of other historic naval battles, such as in Hampton Roads and the Battle of Forts Jackson and St. Philip, which we covered a couple episodes ago. Right. But Hampton Roads, that's in Virginia, correct? I mean, this is the ship has seen a lot yeah. of action. Hampton Roads, I believe you are correct, is in Virginia. Um, uh, yeah, Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh, let's see. Now, it seemed that Captain Morris was not in attendance, though, for this battle. A guy named Lieutenant Amos Johnson was in command. Uh, a Lieutenant John W. Kittridge was in charge of the Arthur, which had over 80 men. And she was armed with six 32-pound smoothbore guns. Kittridge commanded the flotilla, and Arthur was the flagship of the force. Corypheus mounted a single 30-pound rifled gun and a single 24-pounder howitzer. She had a crew of 28 men and was commanded by acting master A.T. Spear. Bella Italia, we don't know what her armament was or what, how many crew she had on board. Now the, now, the reindeer had six 24-pounder howitzers. Now, on the Confederate size, we just don't know. I will say, when I hear we don't know, that tells me those ships are at the bottom of the Gulf. Well, would you like to, to find out for sure? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just wanted to 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 lay my uh, that chit down at the beginning to kind of. Yeah, yes, I get it. You're a smart Alec. We we get it. Thank you. <laughs> so the garrison in Corpus Christi included a couple of militia companies with two six pounder cannons. They did get reinforced later by some militia. A couple of them mounted and another two 12-pounders, and then a 18-pounder as well. So let's get to the, the battle. So on at noon on August 12th, just northwest of Corpus Christi, the Bella Italia, the Schiam, the Reindeer, and the Corpheus were sailing from Aransas Bay through a canal into Corpus Christi Bay when they sighted the CSS breaker. The Union Navy vessels then started chasing her. Uh, this The uh, CSS breaker was actually returning from a reconnaissance mission. So they had, uh, in addition to her normal crew complement, a few Confederate Army men as well. So, you know, the, the pursuit goes on for a while. Age of sail. It's slow stuff. <laughs> and uh, the Union ships close in on the Confederate one and open fire. The rebel commander decided to hold his ground for a while. He's like, oh, I'll slug it out with these blue jackets. And then scuttled it to make sure she couldn't get uh, captured. Yeah. Wow. Get ready to drink. They set her on fire. <laughs> uh, so the Arthur pulls up next to her, and uh, they actually board her and put out the fire. So it didn't work. Whoa. But. That's a resilient ship. I mean, that's. Well, I mean, these things were built to take a pounding. The, you know what the number one threat at sea is, right? I assume. Drowning? No, no. Storms? Fire. Oh, yes. Fire. Even now, the th biggest threat is fire. Because how do you, I mean, even though you're 
in a medium of material that could put it out, how do you get it from there to where the fire is? Well, nowadays, that's why you have fire systems. But back then, you didn't have none of that. That was uh, like lowering buckets overboard to pick up water and then bucket brigade it to the fire. Anyway, (laughs) uh, by the time the Arthur got there, the rebels had already lowered their lifeboats and were rowing towards shore as fast as their arms could flail. So That's a pretty good move, letting the rebels row away while you can try to capture this ship. Well, they they did put the fire out and they refloated her the best they could. And so they've taken their prize. And, you know, one less ship. Defenders of Corpus Christi are slightly weakened. So having taken the ship, the Union commanders felt that, hey, we took one boat. Let's take the town. If we could take a boat, we could take a town. They're practically the same thing. Now, the Confederacy, they knew that the breaker was gone. They didn't have control of it anymore. So they went into the bay where the Elma and the Hannah were sitting, and they scuttled them. That seems like such a waste. I understand the strategic importance of scuttling a ship, but I don't know. Destroying that asset is crazy. So after taking the breaker, the Union vessels sailed southwest to Corpus Christi, and they established a blockade. The Scom and Corpheus were designated to be bombarding the Confederate fort. And Lieutenant Kettenridge then transferred his flag to the Corpheus from Arthur, which he sent north to get more supplies, such as, you know, ammunition and food, because that's, that's important. Oh, yes. The Bella Italia and Reindeer, they stayed out of range and sat there as acting as reserves. And the Breaker was used as a hospital ship. They fixed her up a bit and used her as a hospital ship. Okay. So the next morning on August 13th, Lieutenant Kettle Ridge and a boarding party were ordered ashore to defend, to demand the Confederates to surrender the port town on the Nueces River. He all, he was also ordered to allow a 48-hour truce for the evacuation of women and children should the rebels decide to not surrender. And, of course, the rebels refused to surrender. So the Union continued their blockade for the next 48 hours, and on the 16th, when the truce ended... Kettle Ridge did not attack. Nobody knows why. Okay. He just sat there. He, but he was, that was his um, assignment, right? I mean, he was to, def- to defend? He was supposed to attack after, 40, after the 48 hours that uh, they were allowed to, to get the women and children out of there. Oh, I see. But he huh. didn't, and okay. we don't know why. So, you know. The Confederates said, thank you very much. We're going to continue to strengthen our fort. (laughs) So the civilians are now out and they are done with their fort. So they attacked the Union vessels on dawn on the 17th. Lieutenant Kitteridge apparently woke up and he did respond with fire of his own. And ended up silencing those uh, guns in the fort temporarily. But when the Union sh- uh, ship stopped firing, the Confederates, Confederates would man the battery again and start firing again. So this process of, oh, they're firing at us, cease fire. Oh, they're not firing at us anymore. Fire kept repeating on and off, on and off, on and off. <laughs> All day and at night until Kitted Ridge withdrew his ships because it just got too dark for him. I guess he's scared of the dark. Well, yeah, I would be too. Uh, Sockham and Corpheus were both damaged just a little bit. And the Bella Italia is was also hit. Apparently, a petty officer was wounded on the deck. 
But, I mean, that's really all the battle damage they grieved. Which, you know, is pretty good. So around... Yeah. yeah. So around midnight on the 17th, the Bella Italia sent a shore powder. A shore powder. Yes, we're going to powder the shore. A shore... <laughs> a shore party of 30 sailors and a 12-pound howitzer to attack the fort. Uh, there were 70 other sailors available for landing, but only the Bella Italia's landing party were sent ashore. Can I ask you a quick question? You've mentioned a couple... Oh, I'm going to go ahead and ask, because you're looking at me like, yes, why not? So here we go. You mentioned the armaments on some of the ships at the, the top of this um, engagement, like a 32-pound um, board rifle or a 24-pound howitzer, things like yes. that. What does that mean? Because 24 pounds for a gun, it doesn't seem like a lot, but maybe it is. Can you kind of, or is that the weight of ammunition that's used? Or what What does that mean exactly? It's typically refers to the weight of the ammunition. So 24 pounder okay. gun is firing a 24 power pound projectile at your face. At my face? I didn't you do anything. You asked the question instead of listening to earlier episodes. Oh, I should I should. I should have just shut my mouth and pretended like I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, uh-huh. Got it. Okay. Well, we could have some new listeners that are just picking it up now, and this is a good opportunity to say, that's what that means. So thank you for illuminating, you know, for them. Yes, yes, for them. Exactly. It's all them. for them. That's why it's going towards your face. That, that's how much we care about you, listeners. <laughs> we don't even aim the gun at your face. We aim it at mine. I'm willing to do that for you. Yes. Uh, any anything else? Okay. No, no, no. They just um. <laughs> thank you. So uh, while these uh, thirty men were sneaking ashore, uh, the rebels scuttled. Uh, they scuttled it in a shallow channel leading to Noasis Bay. Uh, apparently, Ketridge attempted to tow it out of the channel before it burnt completely, because they wanted to take it as a prize or to prevent it from sinking and blocking the channel. Makes sense. The Union ship stayed as far as away as possible, which helped prevent casualties on both sides. The distance of the ships from the fort also meant that both forces had to fire at maximum range, which, of course, decreases the effectiveness of their shots. Absolutely. And something that uh, complicates the matters for the Confederacy is that they were untrained on those cannons a shortage of gunpowder left them without the ability to practice if you don't have a lot of gunpowder you need to save it for an engagement or you can let them have all the practice they want and now you don't have any gunpowder when it actually need when you actually need it that is a quite a dilemma so that brings us to the next morning the landing force advances until they get within cannon and musket range of the fort and then fighting started again as soon as the ships resumed bombarding the fort. At the same time, a guy named Major Hobby and 25 infantrymen advanced to defend the battery. The cavalry under Lieutenant James A. Ware were held in reserve, but eventually joined in the attack. You know, because they felt that they were losing. So the battle continued for a while, and the Union sailors held out due to their ships, which supported them with artillery fire. And after a long battle, the Union forces uh, on land started running low on ammunition. So they started a organized retreat back to the Bella Italia with help from the blockade. So Fort Kinney was not taken but it was silenced because of the Union fire. This is quite a battle. This is very um, interesting how it's unfolding. So after defeating the shore party, the Confederacy withdrew to the town. And the crewmen on the Navy ship saw that they were doing this. So Kitten Ridge orders a bombardment of the coastal buildings to where they had withdrawn to. Most of the damage was to stores and houses. 
After all the uh, ammunition on board the ships had been expended, the battle was now over. Nobody had anything to fire anymore. <laughs> right. I guess you could ram each other, but, you know. Mm. Question for you. All right. How would you ram a fort into a boat? I think it would take a lot of determination and coordination of a lot of troops. Uh, one piece at a time. There, there you go. go. One brick at a time. I will take that answer. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, after, you know, all the ammunition is expended, Kitten Ridge orders his ships north into Arantis Bay. Now, a little fun, uh, a little, well, I don't know if it's fun, but a, a little uh, small fact during this. There was a unionist living in Corpus Christi, a guy named John Dix. He grabbed his American flag and headed for the roof of his Water Street home. He intended to wave the flag at the United at the, the ships as a sign of surrender, but before he could get to his roof, his daughter-in-law stopped him. His son-in-law was fighting for the Confederacy. Mm. The daughter, his daughter carried a shotgun and pointed it at his face until he put the flag away. Whoa. I'm trying to imagine. I have daughters, you see. And if they pointed a shotgun at my face because I was expressing, you know, that I loved my country, I'm not against my son-in-law. I'm just... thinks he... Maybe he's misguided, you know? Well, yeah. But it was his son fighting. It, that was his daughter-in-law with the, with the, with the shotgun. Oh, I misheard you then. Sorry. Well, then, you don't think I love my son, daughter-in-law? I don't know. Do you? I have sons, and I do love them, as a matter of fact. Okay, Dale. good. Well, now we have audio proof for them when they get older. It's true. <laughs> this is admissible, I imagine. So when the shelling was done, the Confederates that were in town were very, very angry. And a lot of the Unionists were very, very happy. So anger over this attack led to a lot of looting of houses that belonged to Union supporters. So casualties of this entire battle are scant. They're mostly, you know, unknown. We know that two men on the Union side were wounded, one aboard the Bella Italia, and one rebel was killed in action. But the battle ended as a tactical victory for the United States. They overcame the Confederate naval activity in the area by just showing up, and they scuttled themselves and silenced the fort protecting Corpus Christi. Now, the Confederacy did defeat the shore party, and they did continue to hold the town after the battle. So, victory-ish on both sides... Yeah, I guess I could see that. I mean, the naval presence was destroyed, but they did not take the city. So, ah, call it what you will. I will call it a tie. That works. Yeah. All right. So, final thoughts on the Battle of Corpus Christi. I think it's um, I think it's interesting to see how naval power is and what happens when it comes up against land forces and what it can do what it can't do uh some of the strategies of back then i can't imagine like a modern day ship scuttling itself that seems like a, a relic of the past although I, I could be mistaken but that's um like i hear it more for airplanes more than ships mm. but um i don't know do you uh, given your background what what do you think is that something that still happens if not in the united states maybe worldwide uh, no, I think our weapons are so powerful now that, uh, you don't need to scuttle your ship. If you get hit and you don't, you're not able to do effective, uh, damage control, you the, the boat's gone. So that's just more of a, a commentary on the ef effectiveness of modern weapons yeah. then. All right. So that, uh, we're going to go ahead and leave it here. But uh, at the end of every episode, we honor one of our fallen heroes. Now, many people don't realize that the Marine Corps is actually part of the Navy. They don't like to be told that they're part of the Navy, but they're part of the Navy. 
<laughs> so today we're going to honor Sergeant Benjamin C. Edinger. His hometown was Green Bay, Wisconsin. He served in the Second Force Reconnaissance Company, Second Platoon, Second Marine Expeditionary Force. He received the Bronze Star with Combat V and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was November 23rd, 2004, killed in action in Lutfia, Iraq. He was 24 years old. Ben Edinger graduated from Green Bay, Wisconsin, West High School in 1999. After studying for a year at the University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh, he surprised his family and joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 2000. Edinger completed basic training and was first assigned to the Marines' 3rd Force Service Support Group, where he was a small computer systems specialist with headquarters and service battalion. Now, he was not happy with his desk assignment, so he volunteered for combat duty with a highly specialized reconnaissance unit. During his first four years as a Marine, he'd take part in 61 combat missions. In 2001, there, he, there was an interview with Stars and Stripes, and he said that he was real proud wearing the nameplate U.S. Marines. Edinger, Edinger's mother, Rose Scannell, recalls, quote, He always was ready for any challenge that was brought to him. He enjoyed his work from the tactical standpoint, working with computers, but he enjoyed the combat training more than anything, and that is where he wanted to be. He shared his first lesson of field combat with me. Never eat bugs bigger than your fist, and you'll be fine. <laughs> in his first deployment in March of 2003, Edinger was part of the initial evasion for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And at the end of his deployment, he, re he trained in the U.S. before deploying to Iraq a second time with the 2nd Force Reconnaissance Company, 2nd Platoon, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force. He was scheduled to be discharged early in 2005, and Sergeant Edinger told, serve, told relatives he planned to study veterinary medicine at the University of Wisconsin after his military service. As a rugby player in high school, he had hoped to try out for the Badger football program as a walk-on. Sergeant Edinger's courage in battle was recognized with the Bronze Star Medal with a Combat V designation. His rotation reads, in part, Sergeant Edinger demonstrated exceptional personal courage over the course of 61 combat missions which included 41 direct action precision raids. He acquitted himself with coolness and clarity under fire in each assignment. On 11 October, during a combined direct action raid with Hila Swat in Lufia, located in the southern Babel province, Sergeant Edinger's team was attacked with an improvised explosive device along alternate supply route Jackson, and then immediately engaged with small arms fire from an adjacent palm grove. He provided accurate suppressive fires on the enemy, allowing the wounded to receive medical care, and a sweep conducted which fatally wounded the triggerman and observer. This is just one example of his overall performance throughout this period, as he served as an example for seniors and subordinates to emulate from. By his zealous initiative, courageous actions, and exceptional dedication to duty, Sergeant Edinger reflected great credit upon himself and were in keeping with the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and the United States Naval Service. On November 14, 2004, just a few months before completing his four years of service, Sergeant Edinger was wounded by shrapnel from an enemy roadside bomb. An eyewitness recounts his actions on that day. On 14 November, during a mission to extract from an observation post, Sergeant Edinger's team was again engaged by an IED ambush. Although mortally wounded, Sergeant Edinger continued to man his gun, firing for air until he was relieved of it in order to receive medical attention. Sergeant Eddington was an inspiration to those around him with his physical courage, bayonet fighting spirit, and never quit attitude. Critically wounded, Sergeant Eddington was, was evacuated to a hospital in Baghdad after three days, moved to a hospital in Lundstall, Germany. After three more days, he was flown to National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Following three surgeries, doctors had some hope that Sergeant Edinger would recover from his multiple shrapnel wounds. While at Bethesda, Edinger's family was able to visit the wounded Marine, who communicated by pointing at letters on a chart. His condition improved enough that he was moved out of intensive care, but he suddenly took a turn for the worse and succumbed to his injuries on November 23, 2004, nine days after the attack in Iraq. 
Wow. Sergeant Benjamin Charles Ettinger was 24 years old. In his memory, the Brian Levetti Scholarship Foundation has established an award named the Benjamin Ettinger Scholarship of Honor, recognizing high school seniors who have plans to enlist in the military or pursue a career in public safety or community service. So, Sergeant Benjamin C. Ettinger, thank you. Thank you. All right. Christoph, take us out, my friend. All right. Um, we'll do, Dale. Thank you very much, listener. You, yes, I'm talking to you, the guy or lady listening right now. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, which we more than welcome, uh, there's a couple of ways to do that. So you can email us. That is USN. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. I was confusing a couple of things. US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. That's the email address. What I was confusing it with was our Twitter handle, or I guess now it's like an X handle. I'm not sure what it's called, but it's the thing on the thing that used to be Twitter. Uh, at USN History Pod. Uh, tweet us, or whatever the new thing is going to be, and we'll respond to you. Uh, also, there's a Discord you can join if you want to talk to other folks that like this podcast and want to get to know each other or us join you can find that information in the show notes and as always rate and review us uh itunes or your preferred outlet and we are on youtube so listen to us there make comments you know what do you think about how little i know about ships <laughs> put that thumbs up on there for that's right <laughs> And uh, as always, we're going to wish you guys a fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-1-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-